The following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of October 19th, 2020. On this week's show, we'll be joined by the ringers Ben Lindbergh to discuss the World Series matchup between the LA Dodgers and the Tampa Bay Rays, RIP, Devil Rays, and the paths those teams took to get to the World Series. We'll also discuss the potential end of an analytics era with Moneyball legend Billy Bean reportedly leaving the Oakland A's front office and Daryl Morey leaving his post with the Houston Rockets. Finally, we'll have a conversation about a piece that ran in The Atlantic on how rich Northeastern parents are using or trying to use sports like squash to get their kids into Ivy League schools. I am the author of The Queen, host of Slow Burn Season 4. I'm in Washington, D.C. Also here in D.C., the author of the book's Word Freak, and a few seconds of panic, Stefan Fatsis. Stefan has shaved his quarantine beard, which... Uh, I take to mean that he won the Stanley Cup. So congratulations, Stefan. Yeah. I mean, Doc Emmerich announced his retirement as hockey announcer. So fitting tribute to Doc Emmerich, I guess, even though those are completely unrelated events. With us from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3, Joel Anderson. Joel, still smarting from Stanford cutting all of those those varsity sports. It's been a, it's been a tough, tough run for you. Well, you know, those fields are empty and in a time of a pandemic where you don't have a lot of public space, spaces to get workouts in, got to say, a lot of opportunities <laughs> around here. Have you actually noticed that? Well, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, <laughs> I, go, I go run over at their track when I can, even though I wasn't supposed to for a while, and I stopped. Wait a minute. I shouldn't be saying this out loud. Let's just move on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Moving on. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. The Dodgers beat the Braves 4-3 to in a wacky and exciting Game 7 of the National League Championship Series on Sunday night. The game was played in Arlington, Texas. 10,000 fans were allowed in. Two Braves were tagged out in the vicinity of third base on the same play. Mookie Betts made another ridiculous catch. Cody Bellinger popped out his shoulder, celebrating his game-winning home run. L.A. will play the Tampa Bay Rays in the World Series starting on Tuesday in Arlington, which means that the pandemic champions of hockey, basketball, and baseball will be from those two places. Our baseball friend Ben Lindbergh is here. He's a staff writer at The Ringer, a host of the podcast Effectively Wild, and the co-author of the books The Only Rule Is It Has to Work and The MVP Machine. Hey, Ben. Hey, guys. Good to be back. Good to have you back. Uh, we're supposed to stipulate here that baseball playoff results are arbitrary, but as you noted in a story about Sunday night's game that posted 3.02 on Monday morning, the Dodgers and Rays had the two best records in the regular season and, in fact, have the highest combined winning percentage in a World Series matchup ever. 
So a regular season that was 73% shorter than normal and a playoff field that was 60% larger than normal has delivered the most non-arbitrary result possible. Welcome to 2020. Yeah, so much for all of us who were writing about how random the results were going to be this year, but it could have easily happened some other way, right? Because both the Dodgers and the Rays, I mean, between them, they have been pushed to three elimination games in this postseason, and they've been tied or trailing in the late innings of those games. So while the best teams did ultimately win, it came very close to not being the case, and neither of those teams needed to fluke into the postseason. Like, they were going to be here even with a 162-game season, and Really, if anything, their path to a World Series got harder than it would have been in a normal year because you had the expanded playoffs with 16 teams, because you had no home field advantage in these last two rounds that are being played at neutral sites. However, there was one advantage I think that the Dodgers and the Rays both had, which is that there have been no off days to this point in the postseason. All of the games have been played day after day after day. That will change in the World Series, but that has been an advantage for these two teams because they're constructed sort of similarly and they're both very deep. And in a sense, they just outlasted their opponents who kind of ran out of arms at a certain point. Okay, I have a quick question, and then I'm also going to reserve time for a follow-up question, so don't get any ideas. Anybody else? My quick question is, so in the NBA Finals, we heard that the Lakers had the two best players in the series, and maybe Miami had, like, the best, like, third through seventh. I don't know what the exact numbers were, but that was, like, a common trope. I want to flip that slightly. Ben, the Dodgers have the most famous players in the series. How many Dodgers would we have to go through in terms of fame, to then get to a Ray being the next most famous? Would it be like 10, 18? I think Randy Arozarena is pretty famous right now, but he was uh, anonymous. <laughs> he has, he has weeks temporary ago. fame. He's a <laughs> yes, limited public he figure. Has, uh, fleeting October fame. Perhaps it's a different sort of fame. But you're right. The the difference with the Dodgers is superstars, right? I mean, they have Clayton Kershaw and they have Mookie Betts and Cody Bellinger, like former MVPs and Cy Young winners and really big names. And the Rays do not. And that's kind of the Rays MO year after year. This year, it's worked even better than it usually does, but they are always the team that assembles these sort of cast-offs and spare parts and finds ways to get more out of them in tandem. And I think while there are similarities in how these teams were constructed, and of course, the Dodgers are currently run by President of Baseball Operations Andrew Friedman, who was formerly the Rays' top baseball executive, so there is some shared DNA here and executives who've worked together But that's the big difference is that the Dodgers have the payroll and the resources or are willing to spend the resources to keep their stars. Whereas the Rays, as soon as someone gets good or starts approaching free agency, they trade them and they have to try to get something good back for them so that they can sustain this low payroll perpetual motion machine. So the Dodgers can extend Mookie Betts. They can extend Clayton Kershaw. They can keep Turner. They can keep Jansen. And so they have this great core that they can keep through their primes and then supplement, whereas the Rays are just constantly turning over their roster. And as a consequence, no one knows who they are between that and the fact that no one goes to their games, even in seasons when you're allowed to go to their games. I actually changed my mind. I'm going to cede my time because Ben basically answered my question. <laughs> so thorough my, my second in my question. response. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, you are. Well, let me ask you a very and deeply self-interested question, okay? Sure. Would it have been better for baseball if the Dodgers had been able to play the Astros in the World Series? 
That's a really interesting question. It's uh, Settle it on the field, baby. <laughs> in, I, in talking to some Dodgers fans before their opponent was decided here, I got the sense that they did not want to play the Astros, or at least the ones I talked to, just because the downside was so great, Aww. which was, uh, I don't know, kind of cowardly, if you ask me. <laughs> like, they should want to uh, beat them on the field. As you said, they should want to get direct payback. But the potential downside of losing to the Astros again would be so devastating that I think they wanted to avoid that. So I guess in terms of intrigue and ratings, it probably would be a better narrative to have the Astros and the Dodgers have a rematch here. I don't know whether Rob Manfred would prefer that. Like his his loyalties must have been torn here because on the one hand, it would make him look bad to have the Astros make the World Series again after he essentially didn't punish the players in any way. And yet he is always out for an extra dollar and this might have meant higher ratings. So he was uh, probably pretty conflicted about that. I mean, the prospect of Manfred handing the trophy to the <laughs> Astros owner. Oh, my yeah. God. I mean, this would have been, Joel is pumping this would his have fist. been utterly insufferable <laughs> two weeks of sport to have to, to, to listen, not just to the Astros saying, people are mad at us, like, we're going to show them, um, right. but also yeah. having to listen to all of the takes about this. Um, the Astros were fucking under 500 during this short regular season. They have shown no remorse for what they did. Good riddance. Oh, okay. All so much sanctimony, but okay, that's fine. That's, okay. I actually had I, I had a question about the, the Astros because I feel like part of what you're saying, Ben, with the Dodgers fans not wanting to play the Astros is fear of the Astros as this franchise that unlike the Rays, we've heard of all of the star players on the Astros. And yet right. the Astros were much worse than the Rays this year. And we're actually like in the context of normal baseball, we're like just legit bad. Like yeah. even though they made the postseason, is your thought that the Astros were actually good and it's just like small sample of regular season games made them seem worse than they were? Or were they just like not actually a good team this year and it would have been a better matchup? For, the Dodgers would have had a better chance of winning because the Rays are just better in 2020. Yeah, I think the Rays are actually a better team and a tougher opponent. I think to some degree, the Astros looked worse than they were because of the 60-game season and because of the way that their roster was hit by injuries and guys who got the coronavirus. Like, I think sports writers were kind of confused about how to treat the Astros because they had all the hallmarks of like an underdog team that is fighting against adversity in some ways <laughs> in that they lost a lot of players. Like Half their pitching staff was just sidelined for much of the season because of injuries or because of the coronavirus. And then they sneak into the playoffs with a losing record and then suddenly they turn it on and they're coming back from a 3-0 deficit in the ALCS. Like if this were any other team, I think people would have been writing about the resiliency of the Astros and their character. But of course, you can't do that with the team that is uh, dirty, no good sign stealers. So I don't know if sports writers really knew which narrative to use, but I think fans were pretty clear on hating the Astros and rooting against the Astros. Sorry, Joel. Oh, no. Houston against the world. That's fine. <laughs> One thing that I find interesting about the Rays, Ben, is the, um, you know, you mentioned that Houston was decimated by injuries to key pitchers. If the Rays had injuries to key pitchers, they would still have a dozen key pitchers yeah. <laughs> left on their, their roster. And a, in particular, they have this really strong bullpen. And what kind of we've come to understand and learned is that there's a lot of, you know, unpredictability around bullpen arms from year to year. And, you know, 
a team assembles a great bullpen and they end up having the worst bullpen ERA ever. I'm thinking of, you know, the Mets every season. Um, but is there something about how the Rays have figured out how to handle pitchers or bullpen arms specifically? Or did they just happen to luck into having a really good year where everything goes right? Yeah, I don't think these pitchers are a fluke. Like if you look at their stuff, they just all throw 98 unless they throw 99 or 100. <laughs> so that's something we've seen really across teams this postseason. I think the average four-seam fastball has been faster than 95 this October, which the is... The control can vary and a straight fastball <laughs> yeah. can get hit. And Yeah, and, and a lot of these guys are somewhat anonymous. I mean, it's not like anyone was talking about, I don't know, Peter Fairbanks a, a couple of years ago. They just keep finding these guys and... Much has been made, I think, of the fact that they all have a different look. They all throw from different arm angles. Maybe you've seen that on the broadcast where they show like the arms on a clock and they're all coming from different directions. And there could be something to that. I, I haven't seen compelling evidence that that's really effective or that's why they're good. But I think they have managed to stockpile just a, an incredible reserve of these pitchers. And they have lost some key guys. I mean, they've had a couple guys have Tommy John surgery. They've had some losses. And yet you don't even notice because they started the season with way more just, you know, competent, reliable arms than any other organization did. So even after attrition, they're left with more. And I don't know if there is really a, an identifiable key or, or secret sauce to this. This is what the Rays do and, and have done for a while now. And it's kind of a high wire act because they don't spend and yet they keep finding ways to acquire little known players from other organizations or picking up guys who are undrafted, getting talent from all these non-traditional places. And one of the scary things I think for their opponents is that they have the best farm system in baseball right now too. So it's pretty tough to have like the best record in the American League and also the best farm system at the same time. Typically those things don't go together and yet they have done that. And really the Dodgers have kind of come close to doing that too. These are the two teams that have perfected the art of stockpiling prospects and trading them occasionally for really truly elite talent and then managing the players once the game starts too. Right. the Rays are particularly notable for using just about everybody on the roster through the course of these series and how much of that is a function of the need to do it because they don't have superstars that they're going to roll out there consistently and anybody would sort of bat an eye and say, oh, you're not playing this player. And how much of it is just really um, sort of a philosophical approach to how to manage baseball in the 21st century? Yeah, I think they're just sort of the epitome of positionless baseball. And that can be the case in the field. They platoon a lot. They sort of mix and match guys depending on who the opposing starter is. They put in defensive replacements. But it also applies to the pitching staff, where I think a lot of teams think pretty rigidly, this is a starting pitcher, this is a reliever, and this reliever pitches in this inning or that inning. The Rays just sort of put all their pitchers in a, a big sort of stew, and they use them when they can. So instead of having some guys who go seven innings and some guys who go one, 
they have a bunch of guys who go two or three or four, and it's all just sort of a jumble. They use these pitchers based on the matchups when they think they'll be most effective. And they've used, I think, what, 12 different pitchers to get saves in the regular season. They they just don't really have strictly assigned roles. And so they'll bring in their best bullpen pitchers in the third inning if that turns out to be the highest leverage moment. And I think that's kind of a, a concession to the fact that they don't spend. I mean, that's what they sort of need to do. You know, they're not going to go and get Garrett Cole because he's the best starting pitcher available. So they'll go get someone who maybe doesn't really fit that mold and they'll try to minimize his weaknesses and use his strengths. And then they stick to the plan in even the biggest moments. So they have this script where they don't let starters go more than, say, five, six innings into the game because they don't want them facing the same hitters multiple times in the same game. And so even if it is ALCS Game 7 and you have Charlie Morton, who has a history of pitching well in Game 7s, and he's dealing that day, they will still walk out there and get him after five and two-thirds innings and bring in a fresh reliever because that's what they've done all year and they're not going to deviate from it now. You talked about having spoken with some Dodgers fans and other folks that if they'd lost to the Astros, that that would be devastating. But you talked about how the Dodgers have won eight division titles and you know they're one of the most successful teams of all time. So if they get to this World Series and lose, wouldn't it still be a fairly devastating loss? Or does it not really matter because this is a weird, chaotic year anyway? No, I, I think it would be. And I think the fact that they've had a, a tough road to get here in the playoffs, even a, a harder road than they would have in a normal year, makes fans invested in this. And there is sort of this narrative that's built up about this team, that it's a great regular season team that can't win in the playoffs or hasn't won in the playoffs. And of course, Clayton Kershaw is kind of the face of that. He has had worse results in the postseason historically than in the regular season. And Dave Roberts, their manager, gets criticized for some of his pitching moves, particularly in the postseason. So That's just the way baseball works now. I mean, we can all say it's a crapshoot and quote Billy Bean and say it's all randomness. But if you don't win, you don't get regarded as a great team. Like, in a sense, what they have done is as much a a dynasty as, you know, the Yankees winning every year in some earlier era where it was not nearly as competitive and you only had to win one playoff round to win the World Series. Now we're in an era where it's 10 playoff teams are now 16 playoff teams. And to keep getting back here, that's the most you can do, really. They've they've been in three World Series in the past four. That's really impressive. I mean, we haven't had a, a team repeat as a champion since those dynasty Yankees. This is really the most sustained run of success that we've seen a team had. And there's no end in sight, really, either. It's not like their window is closing. They have this young core. They should be able to continue competing for the foreseeable future. But unless they happen to win a Game 7 of the World Series instead of lose a Game 7 of the World Series, they just won't be regarded that way. And that will be sort of a permanent stain on their record. So there's definitely a lot at stake for them, despite their success. So a lot of times when a great player gets a reputation for not performing in the clutch, it's fiction. It's just extrapolation based on limited data or just like completely, you know, like with LeBron, he's like actually been really clutch if you look at the the numbers and it's it's just totally not true. It seems like Clayton Kershaw has actually earned his reputation for being not as good in the playoffs. And I always root for players like Kershaw who have this incredible body of work and just get danged over and over again for not performing. But, you know, it's not like you can sit here even as a neutral observer as somebody who like 
you know, I just feel kind of bad for the guy. It's not like I can sit here and say, like, people are defaming Clayton Kershaw because that doesn't seem like what's happening. Yeah, I gave up being a Clayton Kershaw playoff apologist a few years ago. I, I was one for a while, but I think now he has essentially pitched a full season in the playoffs. I mean, that's what the sample size is now because the Dodgers make it year after year after year. And his ERA in the postseason is almost two runs higher than it has been in the regular season. I mean, he has inarguably pitched worse, I think. And it's true that the degree of that, I think, has been exacerbated by poor bullpen support, by some questionable managerial moves in the way that he's been handled, by the fact that they have often asked him to pitch on short rest. And I Doesn't think he have fa- like the worst ERA in postseason history after <laughs> the sixth inning or something like that. Like they're not yeah, treating he, him like the Rays treat Charlie Morton. Like right, maybe exactly. if he had been yeah. taken out in the fifth or sixth inning, but like he's one of the greatest pitchers ever. And the, yeah. you know, what we expect or have expected throughout history of these pitchers is that they're going to throw into the eighth or ninth inning in playoff games. Right. And, you know, he's done that on occasion. He has had fantastic clutch playoff starts, but it's true that he does have this pattern of sort of falling apart in the sixth or the seventh. And so everyone says, well, he shouldn't have even started that inning or they should have had someone ready and they should have had a better reliever prepared to go after him. And and that's all true to an extent, but also he's been so great. He's the best pitcher of his era and he's going to be a Hall of Famer and you'd like to see him just get through some of those sixth innings and seventh innings unscathed because that is what great pitchers do a lot of the time. So I think it's fair to criticize him. And, you know, at this point, he is 32 years old. He has had a lot of back issues. He's lost a lot of velocity. He's still very effective, but he's not Pete Kershaw anymore. And I think Roberts has been sort of slow to recognize that. And so he treats him as the prime unhittable Kershaw and he'll bring him in in these high leverage spots as if he's that guy and he's not really that guy anymore. So I don't think they've put him in the best positions to succeed, but also he hasn't really held up his end of the bargain. And I think we've seen enough to say that that's the case. But if he went to World Series, I think a lot of that will be forgiven and forgotten. Ben Lindbergh writes for The Ringer, hosts Effectively Wild, the podcast, and has written with others two books, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work and The MVP Machine. Ben, thank you as always. My pleasure. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The two men at the forefront of the analytics movement in pro sports are poised to leave the franchises where they made their names and reputations. Daryl Morey announced last week that he was going to step down as general manager of the Houston Rockets after 14 seasons. And longtime Oakland A's executive Billy Bean seems set to depart the franchise where he first got his start as a player in 1989. Bean is reportedly considering an offer from Red Sox owner John Henry to join his Fenway Sports Group. According to a Wall Street Journal report, Bean would be focused on non-baseball ventures in that job, including European soccer. Neither Maury nor Bean won championships with their teams, sorry Rockets, but their influence extends far beyond mere wins and losses. Josh, what do you think their legacy ultimately will be? 
It's interesting to think about how they're remembered or how they will be remembered. And there could be other chapters for both of them. I think other baseball teams and basketball teams would be very happy to to hire them in the future. But, you know, Bean was known as the guy from Moneyball who figured out that on-base percentage and slugging percentage were important. Daryl Morey was known as the guy with the Rockets who figured out that three-pointers counted more than than two-pointers. But the thing that's so fascinating to me is that when those particular advantages were seized upon by the rest of the league, Bean and Morey, their franchises, continued to win. They weren't one-trick ponies. And even when other front offices got more analytically inclined, brought in more statisticians, and not just these like small first wave of innovations got copied, but other ones did too, even when the potential to get these advantages got smaller and smaller. These franchises won and won and won. The A's, you know, never made it to the World Series. Famously, Billy Bean said his shit doesn't work in the playoffs. Daryl Morey's Rockets never made it to the finals. But these were the most, you know, consistently winning franchises in their sports are close to it, Stefan. And in the case of the A's franchise that consistently had major headwinds in terms of payroll that that other franchises didn't. But they never exceeded the salary cap in the NBA, and the Oakland Athletics certainly never spent to the levels that their billionaire owners could have afforded to spend. So in some ways, Maury and Bean exemplified a system that required them to do things that, you know, they probably shouldn't have been required to have to do, or at least they should have been able to complement the things that they devised and learned and contributed to their respective sports without being hamstrung. So the ultimate fruition of being especially is innovations were that the biggest and richest teams in baseball adopted his innovations applied them to franchises that had almost unlimited resources and showed that what the ultimate outcome could be for a team that used the system to its fullest, both financially and analytically. Yeah, I think that that was something maybe I wasn't quite as aware of until we started going through, you know, the obit for Maury's time with the Rockets and realizing that, no, actually— Owner Les Alexander did sort of put these restrictions on him that made a right. difference. There were some, there were some constraints that that didn't have to be there that could have enabled the Rockets to be a more versatile team. And it, so then when they ran up against teams that used the same analytic processes as they did, but had money to go with it, of course they were going to be at a disadvantage. And so that's the thing that I guess that I will appreciate about Daryl Morey is that he did as good as he could with the constraints that were placed on him. And I'll just always wonder, what did they leave on the table? Because, you know, the Rockets had, and of course I'm going to focus on the Rockets because I'm a Houstonian and that's the pretty much the only team I care about. But you think about, you know, that 2018 team or the 2019 team or even this year where, you know, a few more moves, being willing to, you know, go into the into the luxury tax might have been the difference between them falling short against one of the best teams in NBA history or winning their first championship in almost 25 years. And like those are windows that just don't come along a lot. 
And, you know, maybe they squandered it if we're to believe, you know, uh, some of the reporting around what Les Alexander said that he would be willing to do and what Tillman Fertitta said he wasn't going to do. So that's what I'm going to think about, that they were really good at their jobs, great at their jobs, pioneers at their jobs in a way, but it didn't have to be that way. Like their legacy doesn't have to have that hole in it. And that's, you know, sort of the fault of ownership, right? Yeah, I mean, to some degree, I think in a universe in which a single championship can change reputations and and legacies, you know, would we be talking about Maury differently if Chris Paul doesn't hurt his hamstring and they beat the Warriors? Would we be talking about Billy Bean differently if by random chance in one of all of the many times they made the playoffs, they had gone on a run like the Rays are going on this year? I mean, like the Rays have a like abject as we've as we just discussed, they have a an abjectly low payroll and they've made it to the World Series and have, you know, they're they're there and they have a great chance to to win it against the the massively payrolled Dodgers. And so I don't think we should overemphasize the championship failures with with either of these franchises. And I think with Maury, you know, compare him to Sam Hinkey, the kind of quote unquote genius general manager of the Sixers who you know, had them tank for years, got these really high draft picks. Um, they got Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, Markel Fultz, and they've won as many championships as the Rockets have and have had fewer chances to win a championship than the Rockets have, at least so far. And, you know, Maury, I think, you know, never had the Rockets tank. They never, I think, even fell below 500, Joel, even when Tracy McGrady and Yao got hurt. Well, yeah, and I think that's one thing that's really interesting about what Maury was working under because his owners would not go into the luxury tax, but they also would not allow him to tank in away. And I mean, the the, th- the thing about Hinky is that Hinky is a Maury guy. Like Hinky came up under Daryl Maury, and so it's conceivable that maybe Maury isn't theoretically opposed to tanking. It's just that he didn't have the opportunity, right? Sure, that's a good point. But I would also say that Maury gave that franchise chance after chance to win and was willing to take like crazy risks Mm -hmm. and gambles to do so. Like he was willing to risk embarrassment when I think whether it's coaches, executives, owners, or don't want to fall on their face and embarrass themselves. He was willing to play this style that, you know, ultimately didn't work this year with with the Rockets playing so small, but, you know, he took a big risk to try to do something different and maybe catch the league by surprise. He, you know, traded for Russell Westbrook in a trade that either could have worked out great or kind of ended up how it how it ended up with them, you know, not getting as far as they did with Chris Paul. But, you know, was willing to do weird stuff and like different kinds of weird stuff. Like like back to what I was saying in the beginning. Like was not somebody who had like one move and just, you know, went to it again and again. Was like willing to change things up and find advantages where other people wouldn't look for them. And that's the, I think, credit to to both of these men, these executives. It's that they changed their sports by being willing to do things differently, one, and two, by bringing in intelligent people who were not considered prototypical executives for baseball or basketball. They made their businesses smarter 
through their actions. And in Maury's case, as David Aldridge pointed out, he's also made sure that the analytics department, which in baseball has been predominantly white and in basketball too, was not the case. That he has, um, as Aldridge writes in The Athletic, one of the most integrated front offices in basketball. And I think those are both important things to recognize, that out of this, this very early 2000s sort of looking for edges in all aspects of society, you know, Bean was celebrated for taking this counter road and changing the sport by bringing in the kinds of people that you wouldn't have normally expected to be running a baseball team. And Maury did the same thing in basketball and has taken it a step further so that his front office reflects the game in a better way. Right. And I even think about, you know, being, and this is sort of a field from what we're talking about, but I think about being even taking chances like drafting Kyler Murray, you know, with the ninth pick in the draft, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like that was a pick that everybody knew, hey, that's sort of a, <laughs> that's a gamble. You might not want to do that. And he was willing to do it. And, you know, to me, that's, if you're a fan of a team, that's the kind of guy you want. You want somebody that's willing to take chances if it's going to help you to win. And you can't argue with the fact that they put competitive products on the field or on the court every year, which is it really, as a fan, that's all you can ask for because any of us that are sports fans know that championships are like, you know, lightning strikes, man. Like, they come around so infrequently, I guess unless you're the, a Lakers fan or, you know, I guess maybe a Yankees fan, a lifetime Yankees fan, or Bama fan, I guess, too. But, but, but you know you know what I mean, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's the sort of thing, like, you, like a championship involves so much more than being good. It involves luck. It involves all these other things. But they were willing to take chances, and like you said, Josh, it potentially embarrass themselves, you know, make themselves the object of ridicule, and just fought through that fear to put together the teams that they knew how. And I just think that that's sort of admirable. But I'll, you know, and I don't remember, nobody can remember 25 years ago, but I just don't remember general managers being famous like this. Do you? Like, is that? No, no, they definitely weren't. It's the cult of the general manager. And Josh, I was gonna gonna ask you, I mean, your fellow New Orleanian, Michael Lewis, is responsible in some ways for creating this narrative around management and sort of glorifying and sexifying the the people that sexifying. put together the teams as opposed to the people that play the games. Love it when you say sexifying stuff. Yeah, right? I, just, I, yeah I had to say it again. <laughs> <Yeah>. just. Sexifying. <laughs> sexifying. Yeah. I mean, how much do we owe Michael Lewis for like creating a narrative around running a baseball team and making it like worthy of a film starring Brad Pitt and the endless attention to the creation of teams. I mean, I guess the earlier iteration of the baseball executive who kind of lore and legend has attached itself to as Branch Rickey, right? right? Like mm-hmm. the innovator of the farm system that, you know, the I don't mean to be glib about this, but like it's a pretty big competitive advantage to be like the least racist executive and in, uh, in, in baseball, given all of the available talent um, that wasn't in the in the major leagues. But that also um, was a strategic advantage as well, too, right? Like not yes. being racist ended up being a competitive advantage. But yeah, it didn't it really did. really should not have been uh, taking right. that great of mind to identify that market inefficiency. But <laughs> exactly, America. But yeah, I mean, I think Michael Lewis and his uh, prose styling certainly elevated what. Bean was was doing and and Lewis comes from this tradition of business journalism and sort of writing about writing this book that made what Bean was doing feel applicable to like every person running 
a business in America sort of made him transcend sports and made him into this like cult, you know, kind of guru type figure. I think that was hugely important. But, you know, back to a couple beats ago, Bean and Maury are both white guys, but Bean is an ex-jock. Maury is really good at ping pong, um, but he's like also (laughs) into like musical theater and is like kind of the classic quant nerd guy. And so I think their rise has been, and I think accurately so, sort of tied to the increasing presence of people like them in front offices. And this idea that, oh, you can't be a GM unless you went to an Ivy League school and, you know, have an econ degree or something. But like, you know, they're very different people. And as you pointed out in that David Aldridge piece pointed out, like Maury has helped cultivate people of color in these positions who are extremely capable of doing this job. And so if you just like look at these two people and are like, they're both white guys and like that's got to be the thing that the person that we need to hire for this position, that's like not accurate and it's clearly like a failure of imagination and I don't think they should they should be blamed for it. It's the imitators who look at at them and their trajectories and say, "Oh, it's got to be a person who, you know, looks like this and talks like this." You know, the interesting thing about their leaving is that it doesn't feel like that big a deal. You know, it's not like they're the only practitioners of what they've done, and I think what'll be interesting to see is where the industry of analytics goes, like what can the next revolution be? I mean, their departures feel kind of mundane, you know, they succeeded, Mm -hmm. they changed their businesses, and now, like a lot of people who get into their 50s, they want to do something different. Well, it's the ultimate credit to them that I think they feel replaceable, that the the changes that they've made now are kind of common. I mean, it does say something about them, too, that they can leave, fill the job is done, and not have a championship, right? Like, that says something yeah. about the kind of how different they are, too. They're just like, all right, well, I can try something else now. Yeah, I mean, different than, like, Theo Epstein, I guess, mm-hmm. right? Who, like, is going from 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 Boston to Chicago winning winning championships, and he feels like his job is is done in that way. But my, like, kind of last big thought here is that, you know, I don't think we can leave this segment without noting that they're both blamed in some way for ruining the aesthetics of their sports and that being ushered in this era of strikeouts and home runs and walks and kind of no more like kind of bunting and base running and fielding being important. And that's like a vast oversimplification of of what happened. But it's like, you know, baseball has generally moved in that direction. And I think, you know, it's less fun to watch in some regard. And then in basketball, with the like crazy emphasis on three-pointers and then in latter years of the Rockets on like James Harden-style iso ball, there are a lot of people who say that the NBA, it's like, you know, Joel, Joel, you love Akeem and like the big man is not a part of, of uh, you know, Akeem wouldn't be the MVP anymore. You you must be pissed at Daryl Morey for ruining <laughs> ruining uh, the possibility of future Akeems. But it, even if you don't agree, like a lot of people have made that argument. And, you know, maybe even though they didn't win championships, the fact that they kind of value winning over aesthetics is um, another you know, part of the conversation about them. Well, in Bean's case, it was almost an unintended consequence because he viewed his job as trying to do something with nothing, to try to find an advantage that um, he could glean from the failures of the better endowed teams. It just turned out that what he was doing was applicable to everybody. 
and in so doing, changed the way the game is constructed. I mean, I, you know, look, I watched baseball when I was a kid. You know what I mean? Like, I watched that, you know, Saturday afternoon baseball on NBC <laughs> or whatever. Okay. I mean, how, how much more less interesting is baseball really than it was, you know, 30 <laughs> years ago? I mean, I, you know, I, if, if baseball fans feel free to write in or tweet at me or whatever, if you think that baseball is that much more uh, interesting now than it was in 1986. But on the Joel Anderson uh, scale, it's gone from a one to a zero or gone yeah. from a one to a point zero point nine. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, it's still like postseason baseball is still as intense and as exciting as ever to me. Like every pitch, like is you know intense, and you know your regular July baseball game. No matter the year, it just kind of seems, eh, you know, whatever. But, but but to your point, kind of close it out here. I mean, oh sure, fine. You know, people can complain about what the Rockets did over the last few years, but I would I would again say that was Maury and the Rockets pushing efficiency to its logical end, and also working within the the constraints of what they were able to do. I mean, you don't want Austin Rivers dribbling around, you know, or, or PJ Tucker trying to create <laughs> off the dribble. Like that's like that's a stupid. That is a stupid basketball. Play and basketball will not be more interesting if Clint Capella is pulling up from 21 <laughs> feet. You know what I mean? So they right. did that because right. that was a smart basketball play. And I really, I mean, that's just hoop is hoop, man. They were still scoring points and dunking and shit. Like, what are you? I don't know. What are you? <laughs> what are you complaining about? All right, all right. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we are going to talk about comments within the last couple weeks by the famous sports couple, Megan Rapino and Sue Bird. They had interesting thoughts on the relative popularity of women's soccer and women's basketball and why um, there might be more mainstream acceptance of women's soccer. We'll discuss their comments and whether we agree with them. To hear that conversation, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. In a piece published in The Atlantic, Ruth S. Barrett documents a culture of crazy rich white parents pushing their children into squash and fencing and lacrosse and rowing, all with an eye towards getting those kids admitted to so-called elite universities. The piece notes that, and I quote, The Gold Coast of Connecticut pumps more athletic recruits into Ivy League schools than any other region in the nation and documents the private coaching and fancy in-home courts that pave the way to those universities. But it also describes a changing world, one in which schools like Brown and Stanford are dropping sports like fencing and squash. Stefan, what did you make of the piece and the analysis therein? I think the piece is getting a lot of attention because it comes at a time when we've had this varsity blues scandal with rich people trying to make up spots in sports like these to get their kids into colleges. And the anecdotes are super crazy. I mean, this is the elitist of the elite. This is billionaires who are building squash courts and fencing in their mansions and then hiring like the top-ranked squash player in the world 
and putting him on their staffs in order to try to f- get these few spots at the Harvards and Yales of the world. And why the story, I think, is resonating is because, as you mentioned, it there is some change occurring here. One is pushback against the notion that schools should be funding sports like these, a general recognition that these sports are affirmative action for rich white kids, and the disappearance of the efficiency in training your kid from age seven to be an elite squash player. The more rich families try to game the system by targeting these Olympic sports that are only really within the province of the wealthy, the more competition there is going to be for what amounts to a static number of spots at the elite universities. So the story is, you know, there's just a lot of crazy quotes and crazy rich people behavior. And, you know, we are attracted to gawking at that. First of all, I was just really fascinated to learn that I live in one of those hubs, you know, Santa Clara County, Palo Alto, California, that this is one of those hubs. This is, you know, sort of the Gold Coast of California, uh, for lack of a better term. But reading that story, I was reminded that America is pretty much has the only higher education system among wealthy nations that binds athletics to its core mission like this. And why maybe it seems even more absurd when you read a story like that, right? And then I just couldn't help but think that, like, these people need to be taxed more and that it would be better to just let your child do what they want, encourage them to be a good student, and then spend all that tens of thousands of dollars hundreds. that you were going to put on, yeah, hundreds of dollars, on youth sports, just bribe an admissions officer or like, you know what I mean? Like, it just seems like there's so many other easier ways than like trying to put them through the squash pipeline, the youth squash pipeline in this country in hopes of getting them into a school. like well, That's what I, just, I kept thinking when I was reading the piece, Josh, was that the number of hours that these kids, you know, and they probably love playing their sports to some degree. These are natural athletes, sure, great. Well, I mean, we read, we read about burnout in this story, though. I mean, you know. Uh, well, of course. I mean, burnout yeah. goes with every travel-level yeah. teenage athlete. But, like, if you take one-tenth of the time that these kids spent training to be elite squash players and actually had them study, they could probably get into a good school because they have all the other advantages, too. But this is also the tyranny of the quote-unquote good school, and the idea that, you know, to be a, of the elite in American society, you have to go to one of these few selective institutions. And, you know, there was the quote from one of the unnamed mothers in the piece who was upset that her kid actually liked lacrosse. And because they wanted to continue their lacrosse career, went to a school that actually recruited them in lacrosse, as opposed to one of these, you know, elite Northeastern schools that didn't want their kid to, pl- to play lacrosse. And so that was, you know, one of the things that you mentioned, Stefan, about how we're enjoying gawking at these terrible parents and, you know, their, their terrible decisions and life choices. It was, I think, odd and credit to Stefan Fatsis for pointing this out to me, that you don't hear from any of the actual children in the piece. There's no quote, either anonymous or not anonymous, about how the kids actually feel about being tracked into these sports and being pressured in this way, which feels like an omission. But the phenomenon, you know, definitely feels real. And there is an interesting kind of question at the end, and and it cites a Wall Street Journal piece on this, is like, is there a kind of 
whether it's already happening or it's kind of on the verge of happening, like, is there this like fundamental clash here, like where a lot of these like wealthy white kids from this particular part of the country have been tracked in this particular way, just as the institutions that they are striving to get into have decided, actually, it doesn't look very good for us to have a sailing team and a squash team and a lacrosse team that are populated by all of these these white kids. And maybe it's time for us to move in another direction. Joel, do you have the sense that that's like an actual tension here? Or is that kind of overplayed? I think that's probably overplayed because, I mean, I, I couldn't help but imagine that Harvard and all these other schools like the idea that they've got these rich people scrambling, you know, to get into their schools. And I mean, in the dismissive way that these parents were talking about schools that I think of is decent. Like, I mean, well, I mean, Ohio State gets dissed like really early in the mm-hmm. piece. Uh, and then I think maybe somebody, one of the parents in the story made reference to the to the fact, well, oh, they'll just have to go to Georgetown instead or something like that. And I'm like, wow, really? I so think it was I, a coach saying, like, there's so many kids competing for these slots that you get bumped down from Yale to Georgetown to Trinity to whatever. Yeah. 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 And there are also a lot of kids who play the sports, or these sports are from foreign countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the slots for Americans are, you know, diminished for that reason as well. And I, I wonder whether this pushback is, you know, how long it will take and whether it is genuine. I mean, universities like having these sports because they create the exact kind of alumni that they want, the people mm-hmm. that are tracked to go to Wall Street. And there's a book that was written by a Northwestern professor about this, that, that mentions this specifically, that schools like bringing in wealthy children in these sports because they get hired on Wall Street. Wall Street very specifically wants to bring in students who played squash or fence, that they are natural fits in some way for Blech. their for their jobs. <laughs> so, you know, is Harvard going to go out and cut squash? I don't know. Stanford did cut squash and fencing as part of 11 varsity programs that were eliminated over the summer. Brown cut women's fencing and equestrian earlier this year as part of a broad restructuring of their athletic department, and then under pressure reinstated those and other sports too. Um, So this tug of war is going to go on for a while. And, you know, the question that we should be asking is what sports should universities be granting special admission to athletes for um, on any level? Should it just be basketball and football? Should it be restricted to financial need? I mean, why does you know Harvard need to have a great squash team? Yeah, I mean, another thing that stuck out to me is how people that are the most advantaged in life have a way of looking at themselves as being put upon. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, it's so hard for me because I'm from the like richest zip code in America. And like, I have to compete with all these other rich people for these limited spots. Like, woe is me. Like, has anyone ever struggled as much as, as I have in, in life to, you know, this, this tremendous hardship. And I think like, you know, rich and white finds a way, like if squash is going to get cut, there's going to be something else, whether it's a sport or not a sport. We saw this with the varsity blues, scandal that like not actually playing the sport doesn't stop people from fronting like they they play the sport. And so th- I think the status anxiety is real. I think, you know, the methodologies here are real, but the kind of 
broader anxiety around like, oh, this pathway is being cut off. Whatever are we going to do? That is not real. Yeah. I, I mean, it, obviously the system just sets up all these perverse you know, uh, incentives for people to to cut around the edges. I mean, you in the story they mentioned, and who I mean, who knows like how how real this was? Kids hurting each other in squash games and lacrosse games because that kid may be competing against you for a college spot or trash talking, right? Bad mouthing kids right. and the families bad mouthing other children when they find out that they're being recruited by a certain school, like literally writing letters and sending emails to schools to say you shouldn't admit this kid that you've made an offer to. Yeah. And I mean, I just like, I don't understand like, so, uh, and I'm sorry for making this about race, but you know, I grew up in a time and still grow up in, you know, I'm still living in a world where like black kids and parents are pathologized for like this idea that they steer their kids to basketball and football so they can get out of the hood or, you know, whatever. And they give kids. I mean, that's mentioned in the lead of yeah. this, of this piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That there's, you know, that there's this belief that you know, we, we issue all these other like avenues to getting into college at the exclusion of like, you know, playing basketball or football. And I just look at this and I'm like, well, you know, this has been going on all the whole damn time. Nobody, <laughs> I was like, I had no idea that this was going on the whole time. And it just sort of infuriates me that with all these advantages, everything, you know, every like, it, it's not enough to be rich. It's not enough to live and go to these, these extra privileged schools, live in these wealthy neighborhoods, have alumni, family that is an alumni that goes to all these schools, but you have to create all these other different paths into these schools. And it just really, I don't know, it just really unsettled me. Um, and it, like you said, they're going to figure out another way. Like if it's not going to be this, it'll be something else. There'll be some sort of testing mechanism. They'll get into chess. It'll be some other ways. These schools are going to stay the way that they are because rich white people are going to keep it that way. You make a really good point, Joel, which is that the public perception of college sports is that it's basketball and football. Oh, it's this way to get black kids who couldn't get into college otherwise a chance to get into college and to view it very dismissively. The reality at this set of schools, some of which have, you know, really good football and basketball teams like Stanford, is that Athletes overall tend to come from high-income, wealthy, wealthy families. Derek Thompson did a piece in The Atlantic last year that cited a, a survey that was done by the Harvard Crimson, the student newspaper, that found that families of recruited athletes twice as likely as non-recruits to come from families earning more than half a million dollars a year than from families earning less than $80,000 a year. So who is Harvard benefiting here? Who are they actually helping? And the percentage of admitted athletes at you know schools like that is much higher than at the so-called sports factories like Alabama and Ohio State. I mean, I, I edited this piece by Ben Strauss about right. football at Wesleyan a, a few years ago and how the admissions process there and the huge number of people that are, you know, playing on a varsity sport that are playing football, et cetera, et cetera, you know, was described by admissions folks there as like affirmative action for for white men. And that's a thing that doesn't get talked about enough. I think it's worth mentioning that the woman who wrote the story, Ruth S. Barrett, is Ruth Shalit Barrett, who in the 90s, so a really long time ago, was a kind of young hotshot journalist at the New Republic who, you know, there were documented instances of of plagiarism in her work. There were also accusations of her kind of misreporting things and misquoting people, particularly 
around a piece she wrote about um, affirmative action efforts at the Washington Post. This was a really long time ago. I'm not saying that there's anything, you know, there's any evidence of malfeasance in this piece. I did reach out to the Atlantic to ask if they wanted to comment on the decision to have Ruth Shirley Barrett write this story. And I'll include that comment at the end of the segment if we get it before we publish. Joel, thinking about what you're saying about the stereotypes about like Black parents and Black athletes, it struck me that I've never read a story about like AAU basketball that didn't like name all of the kids and didn't like probe into their families and put their names and like talk about them. And in this story, it just felt like the kids and the families are like very cosseted and protected. There are some name sources. I believe that all of the unnamed ones, like the Atlantic has a very robust fact-checking operation. Like I believe that all those are are real people and, and real stories, but it's still this sense of like, we're going to like kind of gawk at them. Just think about, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Benedict Min. And like, we know all about those kids. We followed them from leaving home, going to school and all the, the inner workings behind it. And these kids seem that they have got, like, as you would expect, they have a layer of protection that black athletes, youth athletes just don't have. And also, I hate to say it again, black athletes are pathologized in this way. Well, you know, this is a system of slave, you know, we, you know, this is the way they got to get in. And, you know, this is a system that uses them, but like, we don't, we don't get to know these kids in this story in particular, what their will, like what they want to do. Like if they have any free will here, can they say that I want to play squash? Uh, um, do I want to play lacrosse? I'd be interested to know how in the hell they get into this stuff? Because I mean, it's not like lacrosse is, you know, on TV all the damn time or, or whatever. Like, so I would like to know a lot more about the system that provides all these kids. Where are these kids coming from? Do they really want to do this? And who keeps them going, you know, from age six to 18 with the payday of, you know, going to a hard ass school? You know what I mean? I, I, I would just, it would have been nice to have known all of that. The New York Times actually did profile a family of squash players um, a couple of years ago. And you do get a sense of that. I mean, this was a family that, you know, kids were willing to talk and the parents were willing to talk about it. And the, and in that that case, I think that the dad was a high-level squash player and it was clear that there was some pressure there on the family from him to these children. In this story, though, the only family that I think is identified in the Atlantic story is Linda and Jim Robinson, the CEO of American Express, Jim Robinson, and his wife, who was a prominent public relations executive. And they're the family that hired Imran Khan, former top 10 pro squash player. There are anecdotes in the story about nannies delivering dinner to training facilities and riding on private jets across the country where Khan was ordered to write up oppo research on the kids' next opponents. But all the anonymous ones, right, they're the ones that are being cosseted here and that we don't get a sense of of what drives them. There's a scene at the junior squash championships where there's this match between these young squash players named Grace and Emma who are only identified by their first names. And I like verified that those players were at that junior squash championships. Um, but, you know, if this was you know, a matchup between LeBron and Carmelo or even like two unnamed basketball, you know, two players that we have never heard of, like there's just no way in hell that anyone would ever even think about just identifying them by well, their well, first And there's names. no reason to not identify them, right? These are kids mm-hmm. playing in a tournament. A reporter has been granted no access to the tournament. 
And just like you figured out who Emma and Grace are, Josh, I was able to identify the family at the beginning of the piece. The mom identified only by her middle name, Sloan. It wasn't hard because the lead anecdote describes one kid playing at a national squash tournament while other of her kids were competing at a national fencing tournament at the same time. It didn't take much Googling. So why were the identities hidden? Because these are wealthy, media savvy, and image conscious people acutely aware of their privilege and how they might come off in a story like this one. Reporters sometimes grant anonymity to get a fuller picture, of course, but it would have helped to have some people on the record. Like I said, the Times profiled a squash family from Connecticut that has a Harvard pedigree a couple of years ago. So the absence here, I think, not only highlights the difference, as you guys said, between inner city basketball and Fairfield County squash, it makes this rarefied world look even worse than it actually is. As noted earlier in the segment, I sent the Atlantic questions about the magazine's decision to assign this story to Ruth Shalit Barrett and about how the piece was edited and fact-checked. Here's the response I received from Atlantic spokesperson Anna Bross. This feature went through our usual, extremely rigorous editing and fact-checking process. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for After Balls. Our friend, Hang Up and Listen, Emeritus host Mike Pesca tweeted on Sunday night that I must be me. I must be very excited about this World Series because each team has a pitcher that wears a single-digit uniform number. Blake Snell of Tampa Bay, number four, and Julio Urias of the Dodgers, number seven. And I'll see us hero. Hero, yes. They're all heroes to me, these single-digit <laughs> pitchers, Josh. Yes. These are boom times, and I haven't done this after ball in a while, but these are boom times for single-digit pitchers. There were eight this year, and two guys that opted out of playing in the season could have had 10 single-digit pitchers. My favorite, there were two, all right, so let me go down the numbers. There were two zeros, Taiwan Walker of Toronto, Adam Adovino of the Yankees, Blake Snell wears four, Yoshihisa Hirano of Seattle, number six, Marco Gonzalez of Seattle, teammates, number seven, and uh, Javi Guerra of San Diego were number eight. And then there were these two guys, Marcus Stroman and Mike Leake, who opted out of the season. Could have been 10, man. But my favorite of all of the single-digit pitchers, Pitches for Toronto, Shun Yamaguchi, wears number one. Mm. I love the fact that there's a pitcher wearing number one. Yamaguchi, I looked up a couple of facts here. One, he wore it during his long career in Japan before he came over to Toronto this season. This was his first season in the majors. Two, the Blue Jays had a number one pitcher and a number 99. Mm. Mm, that's really cool. And three, Shun Yamaguchi's father, Hisashi Yamaguchi, former champion sumo wrestler. Oh, wow. All right. That's a good fact. That? Yeah. Yeah. Joel, what was your uniform number? 12. Always? Uh, As a running back? Yeah. Yeah. You wanted people to think you were a quarterback? No. So 
I wasn't very fussy. I had won 30 my junior year, and uh, I got to pitch it, I don't know, the day that we were picking uniforms. I don't know. You know, it just it wasn't a big deal in the night. You know what I mean? Like, it just, I don't know. There just wasn't a lot this of This is, are we talking over. high school? We're talking high school. This is high school, right. Yeah. And so I just went in there. I saw number 12. I liked it. I think back at the time, University of North Carolina had a running back named Leon Johnson. He ended up playing for the Jets, and he wore number 12. And I was like, well, I like number 12. I can wear that. That's cool. So then I just went ahead and was number 12 my senior year. But I what wore like. What were you assigned in college? Uh, <laughs> I wore uh, 34. Uh, but I mean, like I wasn't. I think there was a defensive player that wore number 34 as well, too. That's a good number. That's a good running back. You know, that Earl Campbell number. That's a great number. Walter yeah, it, it wasn't as sexy uh, by 96. I think by then, like, the Garrison, Hurst, and Napoleon Kaufmans were in single-digit numbers by that point, too. So, yeah, I would have preferred Single-digit numbers. Back to the single-digit number. Way mm-hmm. to transition back to the single-digit pitchers, Joel. Joel, what's That's your right. Shun Yamaguchi? Yeah, well, my Shin Yamaguchi. Uh, so, Derrick Henry is an anomaly in so many ways. It's six foot three. He's the tallest running back in the NFL. In a game increasingly reliant on the pass— He's an old-school sledgehammer who has limited use as a receiver. And consider that Henry is the only running back in the past decade to win the Heisman Trophy. Indeed, there's just not a lot of analog for Henry, who didn't fully blossom as a star with the Tennessee Titans until his fourth season in the NFL. Last year, Henry led the league in rushing yards and rushing touchdowns. And this year, he's back atop the league in rushing yards, helped an awful lot by his 212 in a win over the Houston Texans on Sunday, I have no affinity for the Houston Texans, so don't think that that hurts me in any way. Um, (laughs) But do you know what really makes him unique? Derrick Henry is the rare high school running back record breaker to pan out in the NFL. So let me take you back, dear listener, to December 2012 when I was a high school sports reporter at the Tampa Bay Times. I had somehow convinced my editor to let me cover the USA Army All-American game in San Antonio, which is pretty convenient since it's only a three-hour drive from Houston. The game is usually a mess, but I really wanted to get a look at Henry, who had just completed a career that left him as the all-time leading rusher in high school history. And it might seem absurd in retrospect, but there were doubts about Henry's potential as a running back at the time. That he was too tall, and that he would take too much punishment. That he wasn't fast enough or elusive enough. Several recruiting services predicted that he'd have to move to linebacker. In fact, that's how Henry ended up at Alabama— Nick Saban had to assure him that he'd get a fair shot at running back. So there in San Antonio, Henry wasn't the top-rated running back. There were more highly regarded runners like Greg Bryant, who was committed to Notre Dame, Michigan recruit Derek Green, and an Ohio State pledge named Ezekiel Elliott. Henry went into the game third on his team's unofficial depth chart behind Green and Bryant. But when the game got started... Everyone finally got a glimpse of how he piled up all those yards in high school. He finished with the game-high 53 yards, a touchdown, and a two-point conversion. After the game, Henry said he wanted to prove that he could play running back in college. I wanted to show them bad because I have a lot of doubters, he told me. This was published in the Tampa Bay Times. And yet, when he signed with Alabama about a month later, he was listed as an athlete. The running backs in that class were a trio of four-star recruits. Alt Tenpenny. Tyron Jones, and Alvin Kamara. Obviously, it all worked out for Henry. He emerged as a star in 2015, his junior year, setting SEC records for carries, rushing yards, and rushing touchdowns in a single season. He won the Heisman and led the Crimson Tide to the national championship. He was drafted in the second round by the Titans. 
But even getting to the NFL put Henry in rarefied air among the running backs prolific enough to make the top 100 high school career rushing leaders. So can you please allow me to geek out here for a second as the kind of guy who used to regularly drive two hours across the Bay Area to watch (laughs) Najee Harris brutalize poor teenagers? Okay, so number two on this list of high school career rushing leaders, Kelvin Taylor, son of former Jacksonville Jaguars running back Fred Taylor. He never got a single carry in NFL game. Number three was Kenneth Hall from Sugarland, Texas, right outside of Missouri City, Texas, which some of you may know is special to me. He held the rushing record for almost 60 years before Henry broke it. He didn't even play in college, but still made it to the NFL, where he rushed for 212 yards in his career. That's the same total Henry finished with on Sunday. Number four, Mike Hart. He actually set the Michigan career rushing record. But the NFL didn't go nearly as well, and he rushed for 264 yards over three seasons. Number five was Kevin Parks, who had a fine career at Virginia, but never even got an NFL tryout. So you got to go down a little bit now. So number 15 was Toby Gerhardt, who was the Heisman runner-up at Stanford and played six years in the league. It's not until you get to number 33 that you find a full-fledged star among all these runners. That was Emmett Smith who rushed for 8,804 yards over four years at Escambia High School in Pensacola, Florida. After that, you don't find anybody else with a notable NFL career until Rodney Thomas at number 48, Cedric Benson at number 51, Jaquiz Rogers at number 56. Should I mention here that all of those guys are from Texas? Hmm? Anyway, you've also got a Monty Ball at number 61. Do you guys remember Monty Ball? Of course. Yeah, correct. Go Badgers. Tavon Austin, number 77. And this guy at number 87 will be special to you, Josh, Cecil Collins. I think he wore number 34, Joel. Did he wear number 34? Well, don't try to put him on you, too. (laughs) That's the LSU guy, okay? Uh, (laughs) I'll I'll leave it to the listeners to do do further research. Google uh, Cecil Cecil Collins Collins if you're up to it. Um, The great Lindell White at number 92 and Jonathan Stewart at number 97. So consider that Henry has already outrushed all of these dudes in the NFL, with the exception of Jonathan Stewart. Cedric Benson, and and obviously Emmitt Smith. If Henry keeps it up, he'll pass everyone on this list but Smith in a couple of seasons. Anyway, the point of this little exercise was supposed to tell us something about the fleeting glory of Friday Night Lights. High school football legends rarely go on to Saturday stardom, let alone Sundays. Obviously, we know that, but there's something about those high school runners who stay with football fans forever. The old movie, Everybody's All-American, is about a running back. Al Bundy once scored four touchdowns in a single high school football game for Polkai. So did I. But Henry is special, the legend who lived up to the hype. Think about it. Derrick Henry might be the most accomplished running back in the history of American football. I'd say that, yes, he showed those doubters bad. Yes. Just a couple notes. Number one. LT Tenpenny died in a car accident. Yes, I didn't want to bum everybody out with all the so, dead, the litany of dead people on those lists. By the way, yeah, Cedric Benson. I mean, yeah. I'll, I will, I will bum people out. So Rodney Thomas can, died of a oh, heart man. attack when he was forty-one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also just wanted to ask you and Stefan, you're free to participate here if, if anybody comes to mind. But this is this is uh, Joel and Josh uh, mm-hmm. college football hour for a second. Who was <laughs> the guy that surprised you the most? that didn't make it in the NFL, a running back. And maybe this is a failure oh, of imagination easy. on, this easy. is maybe a failure of imagination on my part because you're talking about a Bama guy, but like the fact that Trent Richardson. Trent Richardson. Trent Richardson is the guy. He, it, yeah. it, absolutely. I thought he was going to be amazing in the NFL. So, I didn't understand So weird. It. Yeah. 
And if Najee Harris isn't a star, I would be shocked. Too. Can we go back and talk about Marcus Dupree, who I think with Derrick Henry was probably the most dominant high school running back ever? It's a good one. Yeah. Subject of John Hawk's film. Yeah. He got hurt. If it's with him, it's understandable because he got hurt. But with like Trent Richardson, yeah. that dude was always healthy as far as I know. Yeah. I mean, he just I thought that he could do it all. He could catch, he could run, he had speed, he was, you know, powerful. I in fact, one of my friends texted me to remind me. He was like, you know, I you were the guy that talked up Derrick Henry and Najee Harris, but and so like now I can believe your running back opinions because you were all in on Trent Richardson and that guy didn't do shit. And I was like, well, in all fairness, you're right. That is our show for today. Sorry to end it that way, Trent Richardson. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. Listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.